Will you please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. This will be our New Testament reading. We got a chance this morning to think a little bit about the difference between the beginning, the middle, and the end of the Christian life. And I continue some reflections on that theme through looking at the end of Gideon's life, quite different from the end of the life of the Apostle Paul. And here in Revelation 2, we have a letter to a church that is um, being exhorted to return to the love they had for Christ at an earlier stage. Revelation 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now let's turn back to our text in Judges chapter 8. And here we're going to start at verse 22 and read through the end of the chapter. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon, and to his family. So Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abiezrites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again 
and whored after the Baals, and made Baal Bereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Amen. You may be seated. I'm not ashamed to say that I like stories that have happy endings, like uh, when all the loose ends get tied up and all the bad guys get their comeuppance and all the obstacles are overcome and the the hero gets the girl. Like our stories to end with a, a happily ever after. Um, I guess I have to warn you that if you are looking for a happily ever after ending, uh, then Judges is not the book for you. This book does not have a happy ending. And within the book of Judges, there are quite a number of smaller cycles within that bigger story, which also end very unhappily, Uh, each one of them contributing to that of downward spiral that we've talked about several times until the whole book just seems to be tanking right down the drain by chapter 21. Now, with the end of chapter 8 here, it's a little tricky because from Gideon's point of view, you might almost say, well, well, maybe, maybe he does have a happy ending. Look at verse 32. This is where it gets interesting. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father. That's a pretty classic statement marking the conclusion of a blessed life. It's like one of the patriarchs gathered to his fathers. See, there's a very biting irony at work in this passage. There's actually a whole book. Um, that a lot of people cite on my shelf called the, the Triumph of Irony in the book of Judges. Irony is a huge theme all the way through the book. The clash between the way things seem and the way things are, or the way things are and the way things ought to be. That dying in a good old age, that's not the whole story. The irony comes in when you compare that with the other details surrounding it, both for Gideon for Israel and for what comes right after Gideon's death. So let's look at this um, ending of the life of Gideon in three parts tonight. We're going to start with uh, a brief kind of glimmer of hope at the beginning, Gideon's right refusal in verses 22 and 23. But then we're going to learn about his fatal flaw in verses 24 to 27, and then finally his rather lousy legacy. Verses 28 to 35. So a right refusal, a fatal flaw, and a lousy legacy. All right, so verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. So as the reward for leading them into victory, the people are offering to make Gideon king. King Gideon. And... The thing we want to see here, first of all, is the wrong interpretation that the Israelites are giving to the victory they've just experienced. Okay, we've talked about this before, how you and I are always interpreting our lives and our experiences, right? We're looking at the facts and we're answering the question, what does this mean? 
So imagine you get a raise. I just got a raise at work. What does that mean for me, for who I am as a person, for how I'm going to view myself and the world? Why did this good thing happen, and what should I do about it in response? Who do I have to thank for it? Who gets the credit? Um, And maybe what responsibilities do I have as a result? These are ways we interpret our lives. It works the other way around, too. So I just lost my job. I just got fired. Um, What does that mean? How do I view myself and the world now when something bad has happened, when I've lost something? Who gets, not the credit, but the blame? Um, And so when we interpret the things that happen to us, we're either going to interpret them right, the way things really are, the way that the Lord sees them and teaches us to interpret them in his word, or we're going to interpret them wrong. We're going to substitute our own kind of counterfeit, counterfeit interpretation of the truth. Uh, a counterfeit, uh, we're going to be, substitute our counterfeit interpretation for the truth, rather. Um, so in this case, what's happened is the people of Israel have experienced this great victory, right, over the Midianites. That's the, that's the fact. That's the experience. Now they have to interpret it. And they, it turns out they interpret it all wrong. Their interpretation is, look at this great hero. He's so awesome. Gideon is so awesome. He ought to be our king. Let's make Gideon king. But if we think back over the whole story of this defeat of Midian, what was, what was the whole point of Israel's victory? And especially of the manner in which they won by God's design, God's plan. You remember how the Lord deliberately, point by point, systematically, was undercutting any and all reasons for seeing that victory as any kind of human achievement. Remember, Gideon, sorry, you have too many men. Too many men, Gideon. You need to send home uh, the thousands of men who are afraid. And then, uh, that's still too many, so why don't you just pick a handful of guys who happen to drink their water a little bit differently from all of the others, and now you're down to 300, and that is just few enough. Just few enough to show that I am the one giving Midian into your hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. That was the Lord's message. See, these people who want to make Gideon king now have missed the point of this great deliverance that the Lord has given them. They're interpreting this as a human achievement led by this um, great man in their eyes. So they want to make him king. Don't forget what started this whole Gideon cycle in the first place. It was that Israel had forsaken the Lord. They had started worshiping Baal instead. This victory was an opportunity. It was an opportunity for them to repent and to say, wow, look at what God has done for us. We didn't deserve. Look at how he's delivered us from our enemies that we were justly suffering under because of our Baal worship. Guys, let's start worshiping only him from now on. But instead... They take that opportunity to say, wow, look, look at what Gideon has done. Look how awesome this guy is. Let's, let's make him king. They've missed the point. And because they've missed the point, they are missing the covenantal opportunity. 
that the Lord has extended to them. Now, in response, um, Gideon does the right thing, at least outwardly, at least formally, and at least at first. Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. You take that statement all by itself. That's a, that is a stellar statement, actually. That is spot on as Gideon uh, is reorienting the people in that statement away from himself and back towards the Lord. He's deflecting the, the, um, the attention here from himself back to God. Israel needs to remember that the Lord is their king and that they need to return. They need to be loyal to him alone as their sovereign head of state, as it were. That's what Israel needs to remember. The problem, though, is that Gideon's words are immediately contradicted by Gideon's actions. He doesn't take the title of king. There are certain ways where he starts right away to act like a king and not just any king. In principle... Um, God's law never actually outright forbids Israel from having a human king. In fact, in the law of Moses, back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, um, the law actually makes provision for a future king of Israel. Uh, But there in Deuteronomy 17, there are certain guidelines that Moses gives, the Lord gives through Moses. There are certain um, kind of guardrails Uh, given in that chapter, for what a future king of Israel is supposed to do and what he's not supposed to do. And one of the things he's not supposed to do is acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And so I think we're going to see it's it's not a good sign when the minute Gideon refuses the offer of the crown, he turns right around, and what's the first thing he says? First thing he says is, everybody give me your gold. Give me some of your gold. Um, But that's just the beginning of the problems with what he's doing here, because if you're familiar with Israel's earlier history, where else have you heard of an Israelite leader telling everybody to take off their golden earrings and give them to him? There's one other place where this happens, and it's Exodus 32, one of the darkest chapters in Israel's history, and it's Aaron when he's about to make the golden calf. It's very clear that Gideon is acting like Aaron here, and not in a good way. He is leading the people straight into idolatry, even if maybe at first he didn't think of it that way. That is what immediately begins to happen. Gideon, it says, made an ephod out of this gold. Now, what's an ephod? So an ephod is a particular article of clothing. It's an outer garment. It goes over other clothes, kind of like an apron where it has these shoulder straps, and it goes down in the front and the back. And an ephod was a priestly Garment. It's kind of part of the priestly uniform. And there was one very important ephod in particular that the high priest would wear. It's described in Exodus 28 and then again in Exodus 39. And that ephod in Exodus um, had a very ornate uh, breastpiece that contained the Urim and the, the Thummim, those um, sacred objects that Israel would use for asking God important questions, for getting guidance from the Lord. And so um, for example, in 1 Samuel, you see David asking the priest to bring the ephod to him so that he could ask uh, for guidance from God. And the high priest wouldn't always actually wear the ephod. Uh, sometimes it was just on display. 
as is in 1 Samuel chapter 21, when, when Ahimelech, the priest there, tells David that the sword of Goliath is here, wrapped in cloth, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. So it would have been on display there at the tabernacle. Um, now, who knows if this ephod Gideon makes was really intended to be worn by anybody as an article of clothing. It, it was made out of all gold, and so you'd think that would be kind of heavy, actually, to try to wear. Um, so it, it seems like perhaps it was designed just to be displayed, to be beheld, not, not worn. Um, in any case, this is a serious error Gideon is making. And here's the reason. Why is Gideon inventing his own kind of ephod? The, the Lord never instructed Israel to make something like this. The Lord has already given Israel a special ephod. He's given it to Israel's high priest. There are all these layers of problems with what Gideon's doing here. He's declining to become king. Okay, that's good. But it's almost like he's making himself out at this point to be a priest. Oh, I won't be your king, but now I'm going to take upon myself these these priestly kind of trappings. If anything, Gideon is less qualified to be a priest than he is to be a king. Because he's not even a Levite. Much less a descendant of Aaron, like the priests needed to be. See, Gideon should have been, at this point, leading Israel to go to the tabernacle, to go to the Levitical priests, go to the descendants of Aaron, to restore the true worship of God according to the law. Now's the moment. That's what Israel should be doing. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he's usurping that priestly role for himself, in a sense. When he has no relation to Aaron at all, except that he commits Aaron's same sin. It's not just that what Gideon is doing is wrong. It's that it's exactly wrong. It's exactly wrong. Refusing to be king, yes, but accumulating gold like an ungodly king would do. Refusing to be king, but claiming implicitly to be like a priest. Usurping the priesthood of Aaron while only being like Aaron in the worst possible way. I mentioned that this ephod was designed probably to be displayed rather than worn as an article of clothing. And putting it on display is exactly what Gideon does in his hometown of Ophrah. Um, And there, it doesn't just become a religious accessory. It very quickly becomes an object of worship for Israel. And all Israel hoard after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Uh, Commentator Lillian Klein points out something very provocative about this. Before this point, when Israel strayed into idolatry, they were generally just imitating the Canaanites. They're just copying the Canaanite idolatry around them. But now it's like Israel's descending to a new level of idolatry by coming up with their own version of it, a particularly Israelite kind, she says. Let's, let's not just imitate the Canaanites. Let's come up with our own kind of idolatry, and, and, and let's, let's worship that. It's this awful inversion of things. For Gideon to use this religious form from the law of Moses, but he perverts it to something that is so incredibly different from what God intended. 
Uh, same commentator writes of Gideon, that each time he does something worthy of a judge, he immediately follows with its opposite. That's a pattern that you see playing out throughout his story. You see something good that he does, and then you see an element of his weakness and his, his failings. <clears throat> but here, that is just amplified. Now he has reached a new law. He's not just afraid here. He's not just doubting. He's not just needing some reassurance he is now very boldly and confidently... I mean, when have you see, seen Gideon this bold and confident uh, earlier in the story when he was supposed to be fighting Midian? He had to be coaxed along every step of the way. But when it comes to making an idol, oh, he just plunges full steam ahead. There's another tragic element to this ephod. A couple of writers point out, in particular one named Lawson Younger, um, remember back in chapter 6, verse 34, that wonderful verse where it said, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And that writer points out, the Lord had already clothed Gideon with his, with his spirit. Why did Gideon feel the need to create this new article of clothing that would have this outward splendor of this gold? It was so unnecessary. If only he had been content with being clothed with God's Spirit, how much of the subsequent pain could have been averted, and how much different Gideon's legacy might have been. Uh, but as it turns out, he left behind a pretty lousy legacy, and that's where we're going to land here at the end. So I mentioned earlier Deuteronomy 17 and how it lays out the guidelines for what a future uh, potential king of Israel should do and not do. One of the things he was not supposed to do was he wasn't supposed to acquire excessive silver and gold. It also says, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Now look at verse 30. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. You see, point for point, the historian is trying to show, yeah, Gideon... Formally refused to be king, but look at how he's acting. He's acting like the kind of king the Lord said Israel was never supposed to have. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and acquires gold like a duck and has many wives like a duck. And then there's verse 31, this kind of rotten cherry on top of it all, where his concubine who was in Shechem, and we could stop right there, as if the many wives weren't enough, why did Gideon have to have this concubine on the side on top of all of them? And in Shechem of all places, which does not bring up good associations, if you're familiar with Israel's earlier history, especially when it comes to matters of sexual purity, because it was in Shechem that what happened? That Dinah was violated, Jacob's daughter. Gideon is acting more like that Shechem, the son of Hamor, than he's acting like a true son of Jacob. It's another evidence of that Canaanization of Israel that Daniel Block talks about, I've mentioned before, becoming more like Canaan than like the Israel that Israel is supposed to be. And finally, to cap it all off, Look at what Gideon names his son. I will not rule over you, he said, and my son will not rule over you, he said. But verse 31, and he called his son's name Abimelech. And you know what Abimelech means? 
It means, my father is king. And it is, in fact, that son of Gideon who is going to put the lie to that campaign promise, anti-campaign promise that his father made when he said, my son will not rule over you. Oh, yes, he will. To the ruin of everyone. And so even that good moment from the beginning of the passage, that right refusal of the kingship is just emptied of meaning by Gideon's actions, which contradict it, and by Gideon's son, who will, in fact, take the kingship for himself by force. And it only gets worse from there. As soon as Gideon died, what happened? The people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bereath their god. Bereath means covenant. What an awful inversion. They're supposed to be in a covenant relationship with the Lord. Now they're in covenant with Baal. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. As that commentator uh, Younger points out, Israel is right back where they started, aren't they? It's like none of the Gideon story even happened. They're worshiping Baal again, just like they were when Midian took over in the first place. All of the long-term good that Gideon might have done, it seems, has been wiped out. We want to think about the significance of this story for us as God's people living now. Not just stew over how, how terrible and tragic the end of the story is, but try to think, well, what does this mean for us? What do we do with this um, sad ending? Uh, to begin with, this is kind of on, on the surface level of application. Um, Ralph Davis, I've quoted him many times before, um, he makes some observations from, from this story about the, the difficulty and the grave importance in the Christian life of ending well, of finishing well in the Christian life. There are many characters in Bible history who do some great things during their lives, uh, but their biographies are marred by some character flaw or terrible choice, uh, sometimes near the end of their lives, that somehow manages to overshadow all of the good that came before and leaves us feeling just a sense of grief that they did not finish the way that they began. And Gideon is a prime example, a prime warning for us. Um, I mean, you can think of examples in the recent history of the church in contemporary times where a lifetime of effective ministry has been... The legacy has just been dismantled by choices later in a person's life and... There's brought, brought great sorrow to the church and disgrace to the gospel. And what I want to impress on all of us tonight is that as we get older, it is so important to remember the importance of finishing well. We talked about this morning about the Apostle Paul getting to the end of his life and writing to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What a different legacy the Apostle Paul has from Gideon, for the church now, he did that all the way to the end. We remember we talked about this morning. Why? Because he was setting that course, running that race with that attitude uh, much earlier. And I just want you to think about this. You can retire from a career, but you can never retire from the Christian life. 
We must never retire or go on vacation even from being sober and vigilant against our adversary, the devil, who is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You are called to resist him steadfast in your faith. All the way to the end. Because that adversary, the devil, would love nothing better than to trip you up on the home stretch where you can cause a lot of other people to trip over you at the end of the race. And so I just want to charge all of us tonight, as you grow more experienced in the Christian life, be watchful, do not let let down your guard, but finish well. Make it your aim, make it your determination, not just to start well or run well, but to finish well in the Christian life. There's something else for us here too, though. Um, Yes, Gideon's failure is a warning to us, but it is also... Yet another place in this book full of tragedies where we can see in such rich contrast the goodness and the beauty of the true kingship and priesthood in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Gideon had no business trying to act like a king. He had no business trying to act like a priest either. See, the Lord Jesus is the only man who ever lived who could Faithfully be both of those things and fully be both of those things, perfectly be both of those things, not just for himself, but for all of his people. But unlike Gideon, Jesus didn't do that by seeking the outward trappings, the outward splendor of kingship or priesthood, like Gideon's golden ephod. In fact, he did the opposite of that, right? He emptied himself of outward glory in the incarnation, by taking the form of a servant instead. That was Jesus' mode of leadership. That was Jesus' mode of kingship and priesthood. Unlike Gideon, who took many wives for himself, Lord Jesus showed himself to be a true king, as God's law intended, by coming to seek and to save just one bride, the church of the Lord Jesus. So Gideon died rich and happy, right? We saw that kind of almost happy ending there. But he left behind a a legacy of idolatry and death. Well, the Lord Jesus lived poor and died violently on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. But his legacy, well, we're still living it out today. Gideon's story ends in grave disappointment, but Jesus' story ends in resurrection. It ends in the wedding supper of the Lamb. It ends in the new heavens and the new earth, where he will be king forever and ever, and his kingdom shall have no end. We have hope in that final future, because the Lord Jesus was not like Gideon. The Lord Jesus did finish well, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, and he despised the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of God, and thrown forever with a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And now as he sits there at God's right hand, enthroned as our perfect king and our perfect priest, the Lord Jesus leads us then into the true worship of God by his blood, by his word, by his spirit. So you and I, you and I are all just poor Gideons. Struggle with fear and doubt all the way through our Christian lives. We're always trying to take 
the credit and the glory for ourselves that only belongs to God and who struggle in what we actually do to live up to the things that we say in our better moments. And left to ourselves, how could we ever hope to actually finish well in our own strength? But see, our king isn't Gideon, it's Jesus. And that's what makes all the difference, because he is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. The Lord Jesus is able to keep you from stumbling. He is the one who began a good work in you, and he is the one who is going to be faithful to complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. That is good news for the people of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your word says that one who endures to the end will be saved. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us not just to start well and not just to run well, but to finish well in the Christian life that you've called us to. We pray that you would keep us from stumbling, present us faultless in the end, so we might be able to say, I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Look forward in the future to what you've laid up for us, that crown of righteousness, and to hearing your commendation in the end that will be just as much by grace alone as everything else that we've experienced of your goodness in this Christian life. And yet, Lord, we long to hear it. Well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we depend on you. We depend on the Lord Jesus, our King and Priest, to get us there. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.